Okay, now I'm going to talk about me, and then I'm going to talk about Jesus. So, um, so a little bit about me. Um, I'm a massive movie fan. I'm also a massive fan of both Ipswich Town and Liverpool, so a bit of a mixed season. Mixed season for you. There's a few booze in the wrong room. Sorry about that. Um, Luton Town did well, though. Local, local, yeah, okay, right, yeah. No, don't worry, right. So, not a massive football fans over here. So, um, I also really, really enjoy talking about theology. Um, so... Um, if any of you would like to um, go to the pub or, and, and get a beer, talk theology, Nigel and I do that quite a lot, we enjoy it, um, or grab a coffee or anything else, um, I'd love to make more friends and talk about, talk about the Bible. So, um, so, so please do, that's my invitation. I, I believe um, um, Sophia invited people for Jollof Rice a couple of weeks ago, so my invite is come and talk theology with me and be, be friends. Anyway, so um, moving on... Um, so, so my journey to here, I was born and raised in Braintree. I went off and studied theology at university. I then came back to Braintree and felt as a 23-year-old that I was probably ready to transform the entire town and convert everybody to Jesus and um, change the culture of my workplace. And it, it went okay, but ultimately was slightly traumatic and difficult at times, and I realized that I probably still needed to learn from God. I hadn't learned it all yet at 23, so um, I went off to, an, uh, to another ministry school um, in America, which was an incredibly, um, an incredibly beautiful time. I learned a lot. I also met my wife, Noelle, um, so it was all worth it for that, if nothing else. Um, we, we, we have, we're now back here. We're married, working in, um, working in the church. Um, I think I'd say that I've kind of come back from, um, from the environment, which was quite a charismatic environment, a little more mellow than, I, um, than perhaps I was when I first went. I think sometimes it's tempting to feel that that could be a lack of passion, but I think there's something really, really important. It's like, I think about the young people that I spend a lot of time encouraging, and I want them to be passionate, but I also really want them to be wise, and I want them to think, and I want them to be able to reflect and to be able to move in those two things together. And part of today is going to be what I hope is a bit of contemplative reflection. Um, last week, Gareth had us jumping up and down to call in the gang, uh, this is a little bit more rage against the machine today. Um, but that was a Christmas number one. They had a Christmas number one, so you know, it's, it's still good, hopefully. Um, and with that, let me, let, me introduce, let me introduce what we're going to talk about today by talking to you about uh, a Michelin web sketch that's one of my favourites. And it's of, um, so it's of these two Nazi-uniformed Nazi soldiers on the front, front lines, and one of them's looking out into the distance of, and sort of talking about the communist scum and we're going to defeat them, and the other one's looking a little bit worried, and he says, um, Hans, have you, have you noticed that our, um, our caps have got skulls on the front? And he's like, no, why? He's like, well, the skulls, like, the Allies have, like, symbols of hope and happiness, and we, we have skulls. Hans, are we the baddies? <laughs> and I'd love it, like, this kind of this self-reflective moment from the Nazi soldier of, am I the baddie? And that's the title of today's talk. And not... not the, as I said, today is really a hope. My hope for today is that we might provoke ourselves a little bit. Um, I'm not seriously going to conclude at the end of this talk that we, the church, are the baddies. But what I want to do is talk a little bit about the people I think stereotypically become the baddies of the Gospels, who are the Pharisees, 
who I think probably didn't always self-reflect on their position against Jesus's. And I want to talk a little bit about the lessons we can learn from the Pharisees through the ways in which Jesus challenged them himself. Sound good? Yeah. All right, let's, let's give it a go. So we're going to start... Um, we're going to start by reading um, Matthew 23. We're going to work sort of steadily through Matthew 23. So if you've got your Bibles, um, keep it open. Um, most of the passages are going to appear on this screen. Um, and this, oh, this is a lot of text, but we're, we're going to read this one, and then we're going to sort of work, work from there. So um, to give you some context, Jesus has just been absolutely peppered by questions from the Pharisees, um, almost as if they're just trying to find anything to catch him out. You know, what about paying taxes to Caesar? What about, um, do we, are we still married when we go to heaven? Like, what about, what about this? What, what's the greatest commandment? What, what, and, and he answers them all, and to the point where they just, they, they stop. They, they realize that they can't catch him out. And then Jesus, from then, launches into this his own challenge towards the Pharisees themselves. And we're going to talk about who they are in a minute, but that's what Jesus said. So Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love to play the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Um, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven." Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um, before, before we dig a little bit into the things that Jesus says about the Pharisees, um, the Pharisees, I think, do, do get sometimes a little bit of an unfair bad rep when we read the Bible. They were, they were a Jewish sect, they were part, so they were part of the religious leaders of the day of Jesus. Um, you also had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, who were sort of some of the big, the big trio of movements um, who were around at the time. Um, and on to the next page. Something that, um, something that N.T. Wright says that I think is quite helpful is that um, sometimes we can look at it in a bit of a dichotomy of the Pharisees were the legalists, they were the horrible ones who just made people do all the, all the rules and didn't love anyone. And, and, the, and Jesus was all about grace and saved by grace. And N.T. Wright argues that that's, that's something that we've, we've potentially picked up from the Reformation more than actually from the history of the time. Because the Reformation was a, was a time where Martin Luther brought us into saved by grace and away from works in the Catholic Church. And therefore, we can sometimes project that same thing onto the Pharisees. But actually, the Pharisees at the time were quite a popular movement. They were a movement that were quite caring and God-centered, that they were wanting to be in the Bible. But actually, they also cared about the oral traditions. And the oral traditions basically were ways in which the Bible was interpreted to try and bring people into God's family and to help people practically live out his laws 
Um, and some of the ways they, they would interpret that would be quite liberal. They were quite liberal in some of the ways in which they interpreted marriage. And there were other ways where they were quite strict, such as keeping the Sabbath. What I'm trying to say is that they were... They, um, what I'm trying to say here is that the church... The, sorry, I'm going to start again. <laughs> Tripped over my words. Um, another, another theologian who talks about the Pharisees and tries to talk about the Pharisees in a, in a positive way is Scott McKnight. And one of the things he says is that the Pharisees, one of the words we sometimes miss in the Gospel of Matthew when we talk about Pharisees and Jesus is the word crowds. That these people were followed by crowds. They were not, some, they were not like fringe, awful movements who were subjugating people. They were, they were movements that were popular, both Jesus's and theirs. So, and so um, really, a lot of the time, the Pharisees were deeply respectfully trying to follow God as best they could. And that's how they would have been seen at the time. Scott McKnight actually argues that one of the movements in our day that most looks like the Pharisees then, in terms of how they were seen and perceived, is the evangelical church, i.e. us. There's a quote from Soren Kierkegaard that I think is really helpful, where he says, when you read God's word, you must constantly be saying to yourself, is it talking to me and about me? And that's the question I want to ask today. As we read through some of the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees, some of the things that Jesus says about the Pharisees, we may not find ourselves consistently do, like, like guilty of all these things, but I think it's worth asking the question, am, am I, is this about me? Is this to me? Self-reflection is actually a really good thing. Um, one of the things that God, that God actually has created structures throughout the Bible for self-reflection and for accountability. One thing is the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets often were there to go and challenge those in authority, so to make sure that they were actually exercising under the authority. And again, those prophets often were persecuted by those authorities in a similar way to how Jesus is challenging the Pharisees here and ended up being persecuted by them. And I wonder if the Pharisees, if they had self-reflected, if they had taken on some of this challenge, whether they would have avoided some of the difficult things that happened later on to them. So my question is, is that as we go forward from here, let's look at these challenges. Let's be able to self-reflect a bit and say, are there places where we might get a bit stuck in some of these issues too? Um, what I want to say from this introductory passage, there's a couple of things. One is, is that it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't criticize the Pharisees' theology. He's not saying that you shouldn't believe the things they believe. He says very clearly, be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. So Jesus' concern with them seemed to be about the way in which they were living. So we can, I think that's a challenge to us. We can sing great things on a Sunday morning in worship. We can preach really sound theology and still not be living anywhere near the standard that Jesus calls us to. The second thing that I wanted to point out from here is, is towards the end of the passage where he says, the greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Paul also puts it this way. He says, um, truth puffs up, but love builds up. The idea that sometimes by being so, um, so trying to focus on what is, what is the right thing, what is the correct doctrine, we sometimes miss the spirit of what it is to live as God in love and justice and mercy. And we're going to touch that a couple more times. Um, I also think we see through here that Jesus 
felt as though the Pharisees were quite, quite obsessed with their image, potentially more than they were obsessed again with the deeper things of loving others, perhaps to their own embarrassment at times. And we're going to touch on that too. But we're going to actually touch on those things, otherwise I will run out of time. So Jesus goes on to give what is now known as the seven woes to the Pharisees. And we're just going to systematically work through those seven woes. It could feel like a lot. And um, I'd, I'd really encourage you to take, take some time to read the passage again, maybe um, throughout the week, to think on some of these things throughout the week. I'm just going to kind of blast through some of these prov- provocations, hoping that some of them will land Um, Some of them will land with you stronger than others. And at the end, we're going to take some time to respond to those provocations. So the first of the things that Jesus says to the Pharisees is that you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. It's interesting to me because I think all of us would say that we believe that Jesus welcomes all in. But I think if we're, I would love for us just to honestly think for a second, who are the people that you think of that potentially are not in the paradigm of in? Who are the people who are in? Who are the people who are out in our mindset? Al provoked us with this a few weeks ago. I think it's worth just quickly revisiting. It could be, maybe it could be members from the LGBTQ community. Perhaps it could be someone like Jeff Bezos. I wonder if he started coming to our church, whether we'd think he was legitimate. Maybe it could be um, someone who hunts for sport. What would happen if somebody who had been convicted of a sexual crime walked into our midst? I think if we're being honest, there are places where we do. We do try and steer away from some and steer closer to others. Um, One example that I saw that I think is an interesting example to me is um, there's, there's there's a show called The Last of Us. And uh, the main actress in that show, Bella Ramsey, is, um, play, plays one of the main characters. She, it was discovered that she has a YouTube channel. And during COVID, she had this YouTube channel where she sang lots of worship songs and she talked a bit about how much she loved God, et cetera, et cetera. And, and interestingly, um, once some of the Christian magazines saw this and started sharing it on social media, a lot of the comments, there were some comments from people who, were like, who weren't Christians sort of saying, oh, okay, well, you know, fair enough. There's quite a lot of Christians who were commenting on this saying, beware, like, that, that's a scary show, and she swears a lot in it, and, you know, like, she's, she's got some kind of squiffy ideas about her gender, and, you know, she's probably a wolf in sheep's clothing. And we're quite critical towards the legitimacy of her love for God. Something that interests me is um, there's a time when the, the disciples walk past some people who were... Um, I can't remember what they're doing, but they're praying for healing or trying to cast out spirits. And the disciples go, we should stop them. They're not doing it properly because they're not following you. And Jesus says, "Ah, well, you know, if they're not against us, then they're for us. I wonder how quickly we are to judge the legitimacy of someone's relationship with God. The interesting thing is that Jesus says to the Pharisees who are judging in this way, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're on the outside. Jesus repeats this quite often, this sentiment, Matthew 7, he talks about those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? And he says, I never knew you. He also talks about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who recognizes Abraham as he's in the fiery lake. Um, I think he probably assumed that he was going to get in. 
and yet he didn't. Jesus often, when he, if, you, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll see how regularly um, concepts of hell are spoken to when the religious authorities are the subject of the conversation. And yet the sinners, the tax collectors, the drunkards rarely seem to get that same sort of slightly threatening message. I think that's a challenge to us. It's a challenge towards how we respond to those very people. Um, don't want to miss anything. Another, uh, I, think, I think one of the reasons that this is... Intri- that I, th- I think one of the ways I want to try and, try and think about this is I sometimes think the way that we frame the gospel uh, can create this paradigm, can create this who's in and who's out. And it interests me because I, th- I would say that like, our gospel often comes across as a, if you, if you just believe that Jesus died on the cross and say this one prayer and he forgives your sins, you're in. Nothing else to it, you're in. Um, If you don't do that, you're out. But it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, one of the more difficult passages in which Jesus talks about who's in and who's out is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in the parable of the sheep and the goats, um, there's these two groups and they're divided out. And what does Jesus say when they say, essentially, why, God? In the passage, he doesn't say, Well, the problem was is that you just didn't believe in your heart that I was the Son of God and the crucified Messiah, and you didn't pray that prayer at church. Instead, he says, No, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was in need, you didn't come to me. And they said, When did, we, when did that happen? And he said, When you saw the least of these. Jesus links those two things. How do you treat the least? How do you treat the unlovable? How do you treat the sinners? He links those things together. Now, there's a lot of tension within that, but I don't think that we can seriously read the Gospels and come to the conclusion that Jesus does not think what we do matters. I really think he does. The second woe, we will go quicker later, but I think this is important. The second woe is that we're not here to make converts, but disciples. Jesus says, this, this balled me over. I read this verse when I was about, about, probably about two or three years ago, and I was like, why have I never seen it? You travel over land and sea to win a, win a single convert, and when they, you have succeeded, you make them twice the child of hell as you are. How many? That's quite strong. It's quite strong. Just how many times have you heard this phrase? Well, if just one person comes to God, then it was all worth it. Not not necessarily according to Jesus. In fact, Jesus seems to say it's possible that you can go and find a convert, make them a convert, and make them worse. I think about... um, you know, like the church, the church has come under some criticism recently in, in some places. Um, I think there's been a few different ways. There's been certain podcasts and documentaries about big name churches and leaders that have, that have um, exposed perhaps some abusive practices. It interests me that often we can be very quick to try and defend those things for the good that they do. Now, abusive systems where some good happened were still abusive and they still need to be changed. 
it's okay to have a concept of God that says, what you meant for evil, I did to good. I meant for good, just as he said um, to the brothers who, who hurt Joseph. But it's not to say, that it's actually, it, we, we're, hiding, we're hiding ourselves under a lamp if we do not expose the things that are not of God's gospel that are going on within our own midst. When we expose those things, we prove that we do care about justice and we do care about God's heart for those who are in need and those who have been broken. I think about this a little bit. Um, in fact, no, I, I won't say that. But um, <laughs> I will now, because you'll wonder why. Essentially, when I see this, the first thing I thought of was colonialism. I thought of the fact that people went all over the world. And often, the, the, the practice of going into other people's lands and taking them out of them was justified by, well, we're making their lives better because we're bringing them to Christ. In fact, there's a, there's a, there's a woman called um, Kelly Brown Douglas who writes a book um, called The Black Christ. And in that book, she talks about how in 1800s America, the slaveholders and the slaves had two very different emphases on Christianity. One which emphasized the, the, the slaveholders would very much emphasize the you're saved and it's all going to be better in heaven. And the, and the slaves emphasized Jesus' life and Jesus' death because they were holding on to, the, to the, ju- the acts of justice and mercy that Jesus did in his life. And the others were excusing those acts that they were doing by saying, well, we're ultimately making it better for you because heaven's the real life, not here. We cannot separate those two. They are meant to be together. We cannot separate... A, a, a life in Christ where conversion is the main thing and discipleship is put to one side. Because that's the main point. The emphasis here is that if we overemphasize conversion, it clouds us from discipleship. Matthew 28 calls us to make disciples. Go out into the world, go to the nations and make disciples. Walk alongside them. The early Christians, you know, they were called followers of the way. The reason they were called followers of the way because they were following a way of life. There's a, there's a concept um, that I think we need to, just to bring this home just a little bit more and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, it's something that I heard in John Mark Homer's Practicing the Way podcast and it was the idea that um, sometimes we can confuse revelation for transformation. We can hear something and go, oh, that's good. Oh, that's challenging. Yeah, I agree with that. And walk away and don't change at all. And yet, um, that is essentially consumerism. That is consuming things for the emotional like, hit, exactly. And then to walk away unchanged. Transformation is the slow formation through habits, through acts which appear to be meaningless at the time, through just smiling to people, through giving that little bit of money to the person who's begging on the street, because regardless of the big picture, because I'm trying to practice giving away, I'm trying to practice all of those things. I think when we, when we emphasize conversion and we forget about discipleship, we're essentially doing that. We're saying the revelation of knowledge that God is there is all you need. You do not need to know all of the things he did in his life to live according to his way, and that misses the point. Okay, let's go on to number three. Um, 
I will admit, this one is quite a dense point, and I found it a little bit more tricky than some of the others. So I'm going to give you sort of Tom's brief summary, and there's some really good commentaries that talk about this, this point much better. Um, essentially, what God says here is he talks to them about the gold in the temple, and people, were, they, uh, people could swear by and pray, over, pray by certain, certain things, so there were like the gold and the sacraments in the temple. And he says... Why are you telling people that those prayers are binding, but prayers to the temple themselves are not binding? And he was basically saying, you're emphasizing prayers and thoughts over stuff rather than over the substance of who God is. Um, We swear by the things that are most valuable. How many times have you seen a movie where someone will be like, oh, I swear by my mother's grave, because to them that is the most valuable thing. What I think the point that God is making here is that, um, I'll put it this way, a way in which people talk about faith, um, have been talking about faith recently, and I think there's some, there's, some, there's some pros and negatives to this way of talking about faith, is people have talked about faith as though it's allegiance, which I think to some ways, like, so not simply belief, like you're aligning yourself to a way of God. I think that makes sense in some way, like when we talk about the word faithfulness, it's about, you know, staying basically having allegiance to something and following it. Um, So um, a way in which I would think about this is what are the things we're aligning ourselves to? What are the things that we align ourselves that try and steal us away from, from God? So for instance, it might be something like love of country, perhaps love of football team. Like I'm, when, I, when, I'm in my, when I'm in the football stadium making fun of the other followers and provoking them and dehumanizing them and calling that referee certain names is, is, is fine. It's justified because that's the culture that I'm in in this season, even if it conflicts with Christ. What I'm doing is I'm aligning myself to the culture of that team more than I'm aligning myself to the culture of Christ. There are things that the nation of Great Britain stands for that the kingdom of God doesn't. We've got to ask ourselves... Do we consider patriotism as a higher thing or a similar thing to our, our love for the kingdom of God? I think there's more we could say about that. Um, I, I li- let's, just, let's, let's, let's just say I lived in America for three years, and uh, if we had time, we could, we could talk about this in, a more, in more detail, but... We as a church need to learn to stop over-idolizing the things that are going on in those spheres. Stop seeing ourselves as simply someone from a nation and seeing ourselves as the nation of God, the kingdom of God that celebrates all nations. Let's move on. This is the centerpiece. So some, people, um, some people argue that the, the, um, the um, seven woes are like a, a chiasm. And a chiasm is a, it's, a, it's basically a, a mirror. So what you have is you have um, points at the beginning and end that mirror each other, and then each point basically mirrors till you get to a centerpiece in the middle that kind of stands on its own and makes the main point. Um, so if there are seven woes, this is number four, this is the main point. Um, Jesus says, you... You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Just to be fair, I think it's worth also saying here that Jesus is meaning this, I think, to be humorous. Like the way in which Jesus, I think Jesus is having fun. He's not just simply trying to smash us down. So in the same way, I'm hoping that the way we're talking now, it's conviction, but it's, it's kind of fun conviction because we feel, you know, we feel it. We feel it and we want it. Um, um, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Here's some questions on justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Is our Christianity seeking to right wrongs to the poor and the broken? Is our Christianity focusing on how we can build those people up? Mercy, does our Christianity continually, continually give undeserved favor? Does it see the best in others, even when little best can be easily found? Faithfulness, are we loyal to Christ's ways, or are we more loyal to, to others? It interests me that Christians easily lose relationship with each other. If somebody starts to believe something that you don't, or if somebody moves to a different church, how many times have have we ever heard the story of somebody who left a church, usually under a painful circumstance, and then said that their community just... Do we value faithfulness? There's a, there's, there's, there's a particular idol for me that I think I'd like to talk to. I think maybe puts this into practice, kind of, because we, do, we don't, you know, we don't give a tenth of our spices. We don't, I, I would be upset if we did that. I love my spice rack. Um, I'm glad we don't have to do that. Um, but um, so, so, so what's a way that we can think about this? Well, an idol that I would sort of think about on these lines is, is sung worship. Martin Luther King says, um, says this when he talks about the Pharisees. He said, the trouble with these people is they worship Christ emotionally and not morally. They cast his ethical and moral insights behind the gushing smokes of emotional adoration and ceremonial piety. What he's basically saying there is that when we throw ourselves into emotion in the things that we say, but we don't back it up through faithfulness in the way that we act, it's empty. Let's beware of giving Jesus our words and not our life. And the way we give our life often isn't through the great big things, you know, like jumping out of an airplane acts of faith. They're beautiful, they're amazing. But I think, I actually think a lot of us have it in us with enough encouragement and enough kind of get up and go to throw ourselves into those big acts. I think the things that take a lot of patience and a lot of forbearance is the small acts of kindness and love and obedience. They're just going and encouraging somebody in the middle of church when it's a little bit awkward to do so. They're going and sitting next to someone who, someone who kind of smells bad, but like is, dif- you know, is maybe difficult to love in certain ways. Like those are the little things that I think really take, really take our intentionality. Amos, um, and I love Amos, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book close to my heart. We share the same name. Um, Amos 5, 21 to 24 says, I hate and despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with your noise and your songs. I will not listen to your music or your harps, but let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. 
Let's avoid being a deluge of indulgence for the sake of being a quiet people streaming with justice. It matters not how much we say. It matters what we do. And that isn't to say that worship isn't amazing. It's to say, Jesus doesn't say, don't worship me with songs and praise and offerings. He says, do that, but don't neglect the things that matter more. Okay, rolling on. Number five, appearance over substance or gifting over devotion. Here is the thing where he says, you clean the cup on the inside, um, but you you first should clean the cup from from the outside. No, sorry, it's the other way around. Heresy. Um, You clean the cup from the outside, but you should have cleaned it from the inside. I mean, I think we can all kind of see roughly what that means, you know, like, like actually the, the, the inside needs to be pure and, and uh, especially in a day like today where things like Instagram are, are so important, you know, like <laughs> to, to many people, image, how I look, how I come across, oops, someone just said something slightly embarrassed that might expose me to my leader or something. Like we really care about our image and, and so did these guys. I think also, though, the reason I've put gifting over devotion is I think we also get easily impressed. I've found myself, and this might be a slightly risky thing to say, but I've found myself getting a lot of favor in my life. Like I, get, I often get to speak, I get to lead things, um, I get to lead worship a lot, I get noticed quite easily. Uh, I don't know if that's anything to do with me being a young, well-educated, articulate male, but um, <laughs> who can play guitar. Uh, <laughs> But the interesting thing is that, like, I think there's been some moments in my life where my gifting hasn't kept up with my, my character. Now, maybe people saw that and were willing to give me a chance, and that's fine. I would just say, let's make sure we're doing it for everybody. Um, I remember there was a time, actually, where I led worship somewhere, and I'd been out the night before, and I came, and I was still very much under the influence of, um, not the spirit, but something else. And... Um, <laughs> And I could feel it in my voice as I was trying to sing. I was very, very concerned about how I smelt. And I just was like, okay, we're just going to have to get through this. And, and when we started singing, it was honestly, it was one of the most powerful times of worship I think um, I've, I've seen and led. And it, and it felt horrible. Because I knew that I had not given the honor to the people in front of me or to the God we were singing to. But my gifting was carrying me through. We can't always discern the gifting from the outside, and that's why we need to take time to see is the cup clean from the inside, both for ourselves and then how we also call that out of each other. Don't just think that because someone is gifted, it is killing us, it's killing the church, that there are so many gifted people who've been put onto pedestals who could not handle it, and have ended up going to prison, who have ended up having their names smattered, who have ended up destroying their, destroying their marriages. Even now in this country, there's a big case that hopefully won't become too big. But it's happening where a leader who is super influential has been found to have things going on beyond the surface that people didn't see. It is just too important for us not to make sure that cup is clean from the inside. I've not got long left, so let's do the last couple. Um, Number six, weaponizing righteousness. Woe to you teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs who look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of 
the bones of the dead. This sounds very similar to the cup analogy, but this is something I think makes it slightly different. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I think we love to look good, not just in terms of our appearance, but also just in terms of, let me put it this way. Imagine if Jesus' sermons were something like this. Now, there is a way towards holiness. You just need to do what I do. If you just um, get up at 6 a.m., pray for three hours, um, walk 10 miles to the temple whilst fasting, um, and then read the entire Torah, and then when you come back and you see all the sick people, heal every single one. If, If you miss one person, then you might miss what God has for you. Jesus doesn't talk like that. Jesus, Jesus convicts us, but he talks to the heart so often. He, he let his example speak for itself. And he spoke to people based on what they needed to hear, not based on who, on, hey, look at me, look at everything I'm doing. Another way of looking at this is the Pharisees. Um, there's a story he, he tells about the Pharisees where there's a Pharisee saying, God, thank you so much for all of the amazing things you're doing with me. And there's a tax collector who says, Lord, have mercy And Jesus goes, which one did the most business with God? The tax collector. Again, I think it's really tempting in this modern Western day and age where self-help teachers and life coaches, et cetera, et cetera, are rife to try and build a ministry on everything that we're doing right instead of just following alongside people who are broken and saying, hey, me too, let's do it together. It will cost us more to do that. It will cost you more to expose your weaknesses. Not to everyone, not on the stage, but just to those people who most need to hear it. It will cost you to say, I don't understand to certain points of theology rather than feel like we have to take a stand on every single thing. But that's okay. It costs Jesus too. Um, Let's go to the final one. Ignoring the sins of the past. I think this is an interesting place to land. Uh, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. So go ahead and complete what your ancestors started. There's a, there's a, there's a phrase that gets used um, that I think is timeless, really, that says those who ignore the past are doomed to repeat it. The Pharisees repeated the past, so whereas you know, their ancestors were those who killed the prophets, and many of the prophets we read in the Bible were persecuted and stoned and whatever for calling people to God's standard when they weren't living by that standard. Um, the Pharisees went on to obviously murder the prophet. The point we really need to land with the Pharisees is no matter what we think of them, whether you guys sort of agree with people like Scott McKnight who basically say, the Pharisees are us, or whether you agree, with, there's plenty of other people who say, no, the Pharisees literally were legalistic and awful and needed, you know, needed conviction. Whatever you believe about them, I think the biggest point is, is they missed Jesus when he was right in front of them. And the reason that I'm bringing up all of these points is to say it is so easy to let our, our um, rituals, our ceremonies, our piety, our image, our theology cloud us from, from, from Jesus when he stood right in front of us. I probably would like to say on this, on this particular point that um, the reason that people will, I think, potentially be guilty of this thing where 
where we sort of say, oh yeah, our ancestors did things wrong, but not us, is often through defensiveness and a desire to protect ourselves. I think it's okay to own the mistakes of the past. It's okay to say that some of the things our ancestors did were not great. Like we need the history of the church, the whole, are we the baddies? Like, are we the baddies while we're burning Thomas Cranmer at the stake and um, marching into Jerusalem to murder all the, all the Muslims? Or are we, you know, like all of these things in history have happened. I think if there'd been a bit of self-reflection, perhaps it would have been better. And I think it's okay for us to, instead of trying to hide those things and pretend they didn't happen, is to own those things and said, yes, real injustice has come and yet God has still worked through it. God has been gracious to now have us here in a day where we can learn from all of those things so that we can create a better future. So that we can start building the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent, build the kingdom. Don't stick to the things you know. Don't stick to the doctrines and the theologies and the, and the traditions that you feel you must when they're being challenged. Build the kingdom with me. So, how do we respond to this, um, this lot, lot of a lot of information? You might not agree with every single thing I've said today, and that's okay. Like, as I said, this was a message that was meant to provoke. So let's dialogue, let's challenge, let's open scripture and wrestle, but let's not dismiss each other. The Pharisees dismissed Jesus and the radical boundary-pushing things he said that were beyond their paradigms, and they did that to their peril. Since COVID, I think the church has been in quite a season of shaking. I think there's a whole load of things, deconstruction, liberalized popular culture, racial tension, political chaos, institutional and spiritual abuse, many of these things coming out into the wash or coming into the forefront of conversation, many of which are difficult and confronting, and I think are confronting in many places for the church too. And I think we have two choices in the midst of some of these difficult conversations. The one choice is to get defensive and instead kind of push back on the flaws of logic that the other side are pushing towards us is to say, no, no, it's really like this, oh, no, yeah. and, try and try and enshrine ourselves in protection as much as we can. I think the other way is to, is to, is to listen. It's to listen. It doesn't mean you have to agree. Listening and agreeing are not the same thing, but to listen to the things that come to us. I wonder what would have happened if the Pharisees had listened. Often the Pharisees threw questions back to try and catch Jesus out, to try and delegitimize him. I think the culture of social media is so much about delegitimization. It's not about listening, it's about delegitimization. What happens if we took this stance and we listened? I'm going to stand up. I would like to be on my knees, but I'm, I need to just check my notes. So, um, <laughs> I believe this is a, a moment for repentance. Gareth gave a really good sermon on repentance a couple of months ago. It doesn't have to be this whole awful deep thing. Like It actually should be a regular part of who we are as disciples. It's not this whole, oh, I'm awful. I've done awful things. Forgive me. It's more of a, I'm going to turn away from certain ways and turn to others. I'm sure we all want to turn away from the way of the Pharisees and turn to the kingdom of heaven. So I just want us to take a moment and ask ourselves, what convicts you from the list that we've said so far? Maybe what things were said that were offensive in some way. 
What were the things that pushed your buttons? What were the things that maybe feel really difficult to enact? Just, just focus on those. Let's swim in the rivers of uncomfortable challenge. Because narrow is the way that leads to life. And few will find it. And I think what that's meant to say is, is that the way to life, not in terms of heaven and hell, the way towards life and life to the full in the kingdom of God that we have been called to grow on this earth. It's a narrow way because it's hard, because it requires us to reflect. It requires us to say sorry. It requires us to be honest. So why don't we just spend some time now with the Father? God, search me and know me. Show me what it is that you want to burn up. Burn the yeast of the Pharisees that lives inside my own life. And God, ripen my fruit. Ripen my good fruit and throw away anything that's bad. I would like to be more like you. I'm just going to give this a moment. Let's just take a moment in this quiet. However you want to pray, why don't you just say, God, I want to turn away from that and turn to you. This is a, a moment to um, to listen to what God has said through Tom, um, and to to process that with Him, uh, whether that be on your own or whether you want to turn to the person next to you and and, and ask for prayer for something. Um, just in terms of kind of honouring those who are looking after the kids, if um, if if you if you have a child in, uh, uh, in in kids work and you're you're really needing to kind of process this, then if you could kind of um, let someone know so that we can go and let the um, let, let those who are looking after our kids uh, kind of know that there might be a bit of a delay if you're able to go and get your kids now that'd be great um, we don't need to rush off particularly um, let's spend a little bit of time just processing what, what Tom has said Jesus, I just thank you for, for the message that you've brought today, for the fruit that it will do. God, I just pray for anything that I've said that was unhelpful for it to be quickly forgotten and everything that was helpful to be resonant in our hearts right now. God, I pray that this becomes an invitation for us to discuss together, to do more together, to grow together, to challenge one another together. 
And God, I just pray for each person in this room right now that you will deeply move, not just for revelation from this morning, but transformation into the weeks and months ahead. In your name, amen.